Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I can Strike Talk. In 1997, the city of New York finally dealt with a public safety crisis that had plagued it for decades. Its police department, NYPD, and its fire department, FDNY or FIDNY, famously loathed one another. Distrust between the two agencies was huge. That had been made clear four years prior, in February of 1993, when a terrorist attack on the World Trade Center killed six people and forced the evacuation of 24,000 workers amidst thick black smoke. On that day of chaos and crisis, NYPD and FIDNY had not contacted one another to coordinate rescue efforts at all. In fact, NYPD's radios and FIDNY's radios were on different bands, so even if they'd wanted to work together, they lacked the technology to do it. Hence the 1997 decision by the city to furnish NYPD and FIDNY with new Motorola radios boasting a shared frequency for police fire communications in an emergency. Fourteen years later, such an emergency arose in horrifying fashion. As hijacked planes hit the north and south towers of the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, NYPD and FIDNY each sent scores of personnel into the buildings to rescue trapped citizens. But the enmity between the two agencies was such that the Motorola's from 1997 had never been taken out of their boxes by either agency, and NYPD and FIDNY had never even done a joint training drill at the Trade Center to prepare for such a disaster. So, on that horrible day, New York's two principal rescue agencies had zero means of contact with one another. None. Worse, the radios that Fidney did have on that day all failed amid too much traffic. Police radios did not. So when the South Tower collapsed at 9.59, all the cops in the North Tower got an urgent call to evacuate immediately. They did so via stairwell. But the firefighters in the North Tower got no such word, even as their COs were screaming, Fidney, get the fuck out. So they kept climbing, bearing 150 pounds of gear each up 110 stories in a heroic attempt to save people. Cops, now flying down stairwell steps, began to encounter large groups of firefighters, entire companies making that climb. The cops howled, get out, get out, yet not a single firefighter did so. Why? Well, they were there to save lives, and they'd heard no such order from their own commanders. But there was also this. No one in Fidney was going to trust an order especially one as contrary to firefighter orthodoxy as this one from a cop. So up they went. And of the 412 rescue workers who perished on that day, 200 were firefighters who could have left the North Tower, 
but were instead still inside it when it collapsed 28 minutes later. Partners don't have to like one another. They just need to work together toward a common goal or to defeat a common enemy. History keeps proving this to us. Between the years 1109 and 1815, France and England made war on each other 41 times. One of those conflicts, the Hundred Years' War, actually lasted 116 years. But when German aggression threw the globe into World War I, Britain and France buried their historic hatred and joined forces with Russia to make the world safe. A few decades later, Franklin Roosevelt faced a different and more lethal threat from Germany, which forced him to make one of the boldest choices in the history of warfare. He decided to make an alliance with the second biggest murderer in the world, Joseph Stalin, in order to defeat the biggest murderer of all time, Adolf Hitler. Common goals work too. In 1997, First Lady Hillary Clinton wanted to pass meaningful legislation on adoption and foster parenting. She went not to an ally, but to an enemy, Republican House Whip and future felon Tom DeLay of Texas, who despised her and her husband. But DeLay and his wife were foster parents, so we wanted to help. So too did longtime Republican and Wendy's owner, Dave Thomas. Together, the three pushed through a bill that increased foster adoptions in this country by 64% in just five years. Similarly, George W. Bush and liberal lion Ted Kennedy worked together to get an important education bill passed. What mattered was not friendship, just results. Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant hated one another, but won three NBA titles together. Same with Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, and they won six rings. It works in labor, too. In 1935, the American Federation of Labor, consisting of roughly 100 craft unions, expelled 10 of them, who then formed the Congress of Industrialized Organizations, headed by John L. Lewis. There was a lot of enmity between the two, but when the Taft-Hartley Act passed in 1947, the AFL and CIO agreed to oppose it together. Then they merged, eight years later, under the leadership of the astonishingly well-named George Meany, forming a massively powerful union. And have you ever seen a Rolls-Royce? Well, carmakers Rolls and Royce loathed one another. Here in Hollywood, film titans Louis Mayer and Irving Thalberg resented one another deeply, but they made film history together. Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss battled throughout the making of Jaws, but they didn't tank the movie, and it made history too. Deborah Winger and Shirley MacLaine nearly killed each other on the set of Terms of Endearment, but they didn't. Hello, best picture. And the actress playing Fred and Ethel on I Love Lucy, they loathed each other too. The word partner is a near-perfect letter scramble for the word parent. This is ironic because lots of parents run out of passion for one another, but manage to stay together for the kids. That's where the Alliance and the Guild now find one another, in a passionless marriage riven by deep resentments. There's never been a great romance between us. But holy hell, look at the children we've brought into the world. 100 years of brilliance, The Godfather, Roots, Schindler's List, The Sopranos. These are hits, classics, cultural icons, magic. We may not be Valentines, but we've pushed one another to excellence, history, and legacy because we share those common goals. And now we share common threats. There are 850 million content creators on TikTok. I'll say that number again, 850 million. And every single minute of every single day, 5,000 minutes of content are uploaded onto YouTube. Like I said, threats. Meanwhile, in Seattle, Microsoft is now developing quantum computing a means of reading between ones and zeros to create an AI with exponentially more power, meaning Skynet, the end. These are existential threats to us all. Together, the companies and the guilds can face them and solve them. Apart, we cannot. Like NYPD and FIDNI, we need to communicate. We need to be on the same frequency. We need to hear one another as partners.
just like Thalberg and Mayer, Shaq and Kobe, Fred and Ethel, Quint and Hooper, France and England, Rolls and Royce. And if the companies want to think that they're FDR and we're Stalin, that's fine. What matters is progress. We need to stay together for the kids or the whole building is going to collapse around us. So let's take the radios out of the boxes and let's talk. Today, to discuss that, I'm joined by two experts on the subject of worldwide labor and how it relates to capitalism. Please welcome Michael Podhorzer, former political director of the AFL-CIO, and to class this episode up considerably, the General Secretary of British Equity, Paul Fleming. Fellas, thank you for joining us. It's an honor to have you here both. Here's my question for you from opposite sides of the pond. Where do you see labor right now in terms of its relationship to management, in terms of its place in capitalism, and in terms of its attempt to regain former power? Paul, I'll start with you. I think there is a reality that there is an innate power in labor, but there are moments in history where we recognize and realize that. Um, the, the Second War was a, a phenomenal turning point for the consciousness of, of labor. The Great Depression was a phenomenal turning point. And throughout history, um, there have been moments of, 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 of those turning points right back until the Middle Ages. You know, the impact of the Black Death, the organization of guilds um, that comes from those labor shortages. That is worker power throughout history. We are living in one of those moments and we're living in that moment because the neoliberal economic consensus, which has existed since the 19, um, late 1970s, 1980s, um, has collapsed, it has failed to deliver the terms and conditions, the dignity at work that people have seen. People see the root cause of inequality of every type as lying in the heart of neoliberalism and their right to. And indeed, the, the, the planet is on fire. I mean, we have the biggest existential crisis humanity has ever faced. Um, and the only way of fixing that is a fundamental change to the structure of the economy, the things we value and the way in which we operate. And labour, organised labour, is being seen increasingly as the answer. The, the function of every trade union is to make sure that working people can be artists. It's to ensure that um, every working person is not a number on a balance sheet, but has a work-life balance, the education, the means, the income to flourish as something beyond just an economic unit. That's our job. The job of the arts and entertainment unions is actually to do that and to ensure that artists uh, can be confident as dignified working people. Our members play a lot of parts, but sometimes playing the part of a trades unionist is the most frightening one. Um, they're told that art um, is better if you're poorer, it's better if you live a bohemian existence, it's better if you're oppressed, it's better, you know, actually you feel these things. But none of those things are true. And actually our job is to make sure that people play that role. And what we're seeing play out on both sides of the Atlantic in every profession, in every industry, but particularly at the moment in the arts and entertainment industries, is that realisation against a backdrop of chaos. It's a, a moment of phenomenal realisation and of phenomenal hope. Mike, do you see it the same way? The essential piece of neoliberalism was breaking down the opportunity for all of us to act collectively. And most people who think about unions think about them in terms of what they do for the people who are in unions. And what I think is really important for us to understand is what a society that enables and empowers people to work together, be it in unions or in other constellations, what kind of richer democracy that constitutes and how the internal fights that you were talking about at the beginning actually have a place 
to get resolved. And people develop the habit of understanding how to work together and compromise. Right? When even picking up on the writers and, and getting together, it's when you belong to a union, these things happen to you. One, you realize that you have to work together and you're all going to get the same contract. And on the one hand, that contract's going to be way better than if you just went in to Microsoft or GM or MGM or whatever to try to negotiate on your own behalf. But it also means that before you get there, you have to find a way to be skillful at working with each other to know how to advance together. And a lot of the challenges in our greater society, racism, sexism, all of those things have to be left at the door if you're going to be successful in negotiating a contract. And that's why it's not surprising that in America, which is very much not like England or the rest of the world, where we have one part of the country, which is almost a complete overlap with what people think of as blue America, and another part, which is red America. In one part, there are unions. In the other part, there aren't. And in that blue part, people have higher wages, have higher life expectancy. There's thicker democracy. People actually work with each other to get through problems. That's why the, this idea of working together again, acting collectively, is getting a rebirth. And part of that rebirth we're seeing in Amazon and Starbucks now in these strikes, that it's about time that we work together again against these powerful forces. And inequality is really the wrong thing to call it. It's not inequality. It's kind of theft of the product of what we do, right? If you go back to FDR, he just called it out. They were economic royalists, right? The reason people were poor was because other people were making away with the benefits of their work, right? There's, that's what's going on. There shouldn't be billionaires. There should be shared prosperity given all of the work that people in America do and around the world. Um, we know that since 1980, $50 trillion in the American economy have moved from the bottom 90% to the richest 1%, the biggest migration of wealth in human history. It happened under Democratic presidents as well as Republican presidents. Um, but it seems to have left Americans with this idea that anything is justifiable if it will keep that richest 1% richer. It seems like the rules are designed just to do that in terms of lobbyists writing laws, in terms of stock buybacks, in terms of just outright corruption. Are we seeing numbers to indicate that there are more people gravitating towards unions now than there were five years ago or 10 years ago? Sure. The Gallup, which has been polling the question of whether people support unions and whether they think they make society better for more than half a century, now in the last few years has recorded the highest numbers in the or low 70s in terms of all the favorability ratings. And I think it's important for people who are listening to this podcast to really step back and think about that for a second. If 70% of Americans want to be in unions and only 10% are, right, there's something going on. And what that something is, is all the ways in which corporate corporations try to make sure that people cannot have unions because they would do it in a minute, right? 
gig workers, Uber, all of the gig economy, they want unions. But instead, Uber, the other companies lobby, they get laws that make them have to be independent contractors. And unlike the right screenwriters and others who were, came of age in an era where there were stronger labor movement and they, who are sort of could have been just like Uber workers, right, um, actually found a way to create a union in a different model, right? But that's the problem is every new industry that comes up, they're the lobbyists, as you say. There they are making sure that those new parts of the economy are off limits to union. And that's what we have to break up against. Our, our union density is higher than the than United States, and the average of, of about 25% of British workers are unionized. But when you look at where those people fall, they're disproportionately in the public sector, the National Health Service and so on. Um, and indeed, the remnants of heavy industry, the old, um, you know, the highly unionized areas, so British, Air, uh, British Airways, for instance, a former nationalized company now in the private sector and so on, heavy manufacturing. My father worked in a car factory dependent on um, you know, the, the nationalized car industry. He was, uh, the, 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 it's all those sorts of places and including us. I mean, our, our, our density is um, around uh, 75 to 80% in all of the areas we organize in. That's significantly higher than the national average. And that's as a result of that legacy. We were able to operate as a closed shop until 1988. And we, we have that density legacy as a result of that. But some of the most impressive wins that have happened um, over the last few years over here have been for Uber drivers, have been for Deliveroo drivers, have been for Amazon workers. I mean, we were the first amazing thing a few weeks ago, the first Amazon warehouse been entirely shut down in the world was in the UK as a result of labour action, as a result of um, you know a, a really strong picket um, and, and an action there. There's a lot of reflection that has to happen on the part of unions as to how that's possible, how you respond to a new economy. And we also have to have a degree of internal self-criticism as to why black workers are less likely to be unionised, as to why those sectors are uh, where, where, where we see the most vulnerable in society are least likely to be unionised. Why does a, a movement predominantly of women within the UK um, not have women uh, disproportionately at the top in leadership positions and actually within their national executives and so on? These are huge questions for us um, as we map it out. And the broader European and indeed global context is you don't always have to operate the way that the British movement or the American movement or the Anglophone movement has always worked to deliver worker power. Margaret Thatcher's infamous speech, it's her final speech to the House of Commons as Prime Minister, she accuses the Labour Party of being interested only if the gap between rich and poor narrows. She says, I would much rather the people at the top, their wealth grows, and the people at the bottom grows, and the gap grows. As long as the people at the bottom, their wealth is growing, it doesn't matter. And that actually is the consensus that has held in this country for a very long time. But over the last 10 years, we've had the longest period of wage stagnation in British history since the Napoleonic Wars. Um, the gap between rich and poor is larger now than it was at the time of the French Revolution. That is extraordinary. And people are feeling that in a way that they never have done before. We've lost more days to industrial action over the past 24 months across the economy than we have since the late 1980s. Um, and we're winning. That's the difference between the late 1980s and now. Everyone who's taking action is winning. So that is a that breakdown in consent, that desire to be in a union, the examples that unions are setting in changing the way that they operate and who they speak to, this is the beginning of a long journey, but it's, it's a, a, a healthy place to be, I think. Mike, can you expand on that at all? What people in, in this country, in Great Britain, the United Kingdom, around the world, when labor unions were stronger, 
was a putting aside in, even income measures, they had a sense of confidence. They had a sense of confidence that their work would be getting a fair reward, but they were also confident that they were living in a society where their kids could do better, where um, there was hope, where they could have you know sustainable middle-class lives. And neoliberalism, this idea of just everything, let everybody try to get as much profit and everyone will be better off, is really seeing be seen now as BS. And I think that's what's underneath this. And the critical question in the United States, which I think is a really open question because we have such a different history than Europe does in terms of labor, is whether people start to see each other's struggles in their own struggles, right? Even though in France, as you were saying, density is only 10%, they still have general strikes, right? They still have a sense of class identity, of, a, of how to act as a collective agent to get their future a different future. That's really been... Um, you know, cut back in the United States. And hopefully this new generation, because a lot of the people you're talking about are younger, are not going to put up with it anymore and will take the dramatic actions that were needed decades ago to get the labor movement going in the first place. I mean, we have an extremely right-wing prime minister in Italy. We have um, the, the, a, a real, I mean, the Spanish electorate has just seen off a, an incredibly right-wing, quasi-fascist uh, opposition in Spain. We have the rise of the far right in Austria and in Hungary, and an awful lot of commentary around Turkey. These are born out of um, the same struggles and economic questions as the progressive government in Colombia is being born out of, as we see the defeat of Bolsonaro in Brazil, as we see um, the rise of uh, new left ideas, and indeed biodynamics and those broader questions, how to respond to um, the problems of, of that neoliberalism has left us with, the collapsing consensus. The, the lesson people have to remember in the context of Brexit is that trades unionism, socialism, that they, are, they must be religions of converts, not of heretics. You, you, you have to look at the depth of what people are being uh, told what they, how they are responding and what their material conditions are like and lead them with a view of how the world could be, not simply dismiss them as being, um, you know, knuckle-dragging, uh, dragging, um, you know, uh, re reactionary, intrinsically bad people. Instead, recognise that Brexit, um, indeed the retreat into conservatism in 2019 in this country, despite the incredibly good showing the Labour Party had a very radical manifesto in 2017, what is all this telling us? And what's Labour's role in this? What, is, what can we tell people from a well-organised workplace? Um, how, do we play, how do we place uh, pressure on the structures of society to build a more economically and socially just world? Um, they are all interlinked, and it's beyond the Anglophone world, it's beyond Europe, it's beyond the Americas. It, it, it is happening in every single corner of the globe. There's an awful lot of hope out there but they are all symptoms of the same disease. I firmly believe that there is tremendous commonality between the CEOs of the companies that we're striking against and the writers and uh, the actors. I, I believe we're all in this together and we all need one another. I don't think CEOs can survive without writers and actors. And I know writers and actors can't survive without CEOs. 
Why is that commonality seemingly harder to find now? Well, I think part of it is that with all of the financial deregulation that took place in the 80s and 90s in particular, and then into 2000, the pressure really on corporations is just to keep returning the best short-term profit. And in sort of before the 70s, you did have CEOs of corporations that felt a loyalty to that industry and that company succeeding in the future. And now you have much more mercenary leadership in these companies that like could be off to a different, be a CEO in a different company tomorrow. Um, and it's a, so it's a much different set of incentives for them. The, the commonality comes through a mechanism to negotiate, to strike, to resolve a strike and to move on to the next point. So I, I don't think there is a breakdown. Actually, I just think there is a paradigm shift. A lot of it will be about the human questions of who you bring around the table. Uh, Mike is, of course, right that CEOs are very different beasts. They don't have that attachment to broader society that the generation of people who went through the war or went through um, big sort of life-changing events, you know, big, uh, the 60s indeed itself, those sorts of generational shifts in cultural um, solidarity in the way in which the economy worked. There's a lot of people now who are quite alienate or isolate. have never met anybody um, who isn't of their same social status, in their same class. Um, that is a problem. There is a disconnect because industrial relations are seen as secondary and now they're realising that it's primary. But I do think the glimmers of hope that we are uh, that, that that we continue to see are because of the com- are because of the structure rather than the commonality of interest. It is the architecture that has been built, which allows us a framework to bring together in that exchange of 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 of, of views, sometimes hostile, sometimes conciliatory. Um, so I think that's that's probably what I look to. I look at great confidence that you know. You don't have a situation in the United States where either side is seeking to break the industrial architecture. Um, What we're seeing is a paradigm shift in the way in which profit is distributed. In fact, what has been happening in the United States is the really by the late 70s was uh, sort of a walking away by the government from the kind of architecture you were talking about. Right. The, for unions and collective action to be successful, they have to like, have the support of the government when the law is on their side. And what really happened famously here with uh, Reagan and Patco was basically a signal to corporate America that they no longer had to worry about the laws constraining their activity. And almost overnight, strikes in the United States disappeared for almost half a century and starting to come back now. But unless working people strike the way they are now and the way Paul was talking about it, there is no real power um, in a union, right? It's only the ability to to cost the companies uh, that brings them to the table to negotiate. Do unions matter in elections anymore? Can unions have power if they don't matter in elections anymore? Well, unions in the United States, we definitely have power in elections. uh, And you can look at that different ways. The way it's most commonly looked at 
is just that there are a lot of academic studies that show that when you control for different all the demographics, people when they join it once they join a union become much more likely to support Democrats than people of the same demographics and life circumstance. And people who are in unions are much more likely to go out and volunteer and other activities. Um, but the, there's a way in which, and I think this was in your question, it's in, when everybody asked me this question, you're just thinking about like the presidential election or something. But if you're in Los Angeles, in wherever you are, like a mayor's race, a city council race, um, a school board race, all of those elections in places where there are strong unions is an integral part of politics, right? That's, that is why blue states just are very different than red ones because you have a vehicle for collective action. And in the United States, we know that at least 5,000 people who are members of the AFL-CIO have been elected to office, right, or serving right now. And there are probably more that we don't know about. But that goes everything from someone who's sitting on a fire commission somewhere up to literally the mayor, uh, the governor of Minnesota, um, who was a teacher and who we helped win a congressional race and then the governor's race as well as members of Congress, right? We're an important part of political democracy in this country where unions are enabled. And it's hard to explain to our members who are looking over to the other side of the pond and saying, gosh, look at these Americans. They're really inspired by the action that's happening in Hollywood and indeed across um, the United States. Why can't we do that here? And it's very difficult because everybody thinks America is this incredibly sort of harsh, capitalistic, unlabor-friendly environment. Say, so actually, the legislative framework in the United Kingdom is worse. It is the most restrictive labor legislation in the Western world by a long, long way. Um, and, and that is, it, 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 the, the last plank of the Labour Party's radical manifesto is to liberalize that significantly. It is the scrapping of the majority of Thatcherite legislation. It is um, the modernization of the framework. Uh, it is investment in the framework, improved access to workplaces, creating sectoral bargaining, um, and indeed simply freedom to take industrial action more easily. There is a generation of union leadership, uh, elected general secretaries like myself, um, elected uh, national executives of unions, who are, who are very clear that they wish to see an industrial focus for their unions. The consequence of that, as exactly as Michael says, is a growth in political power. Uh, it's a growth in the importance of unions. And if you map over... Um, areas who voted Conservative in 2019. They are places who disproportionately voted to leave the European Union in uh, 2016. They are disproportionately places who voted Labour, some of them for in excess of 100 years, and flipped. Now, they have also seen the largest collapse in union density. Union density in this country is disproportionately now in the public sector, is disproportionately in professionalised environments, teaching, lecturers, you know, scientists, uh, civil servants, people with degrees are more likely to be in unions than blue-collar workers. Now, actually, if we get some more blue-collar workers into unions um, and lead as well as follow the need, behave both as the harpingers of a new society as well as syndicates representing the interests of our members, and that's a difficult balance to get right sometimes, uh, the, 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 the strength and power of unions in politics will grow. Um, so it's a complex picture at the minute, but the last radical plank of the Labour manifesto is, I think, 
a pathway to unions having a real and meaningful impact in the direction of, of where um, certainly the UK is going to go in the next 10, 15 years. And I think it's an inevitability that's where we'll end up. We seem to be accepting in this country that corporations, conglomerations will have so much impact on the mechanics of government that the rules will just continually get written to benefit conglomerations, um, making the individual matter less and making political corruption uh, more routinized. Are unions the best means of counteracting that? And if so, what does that look like? I think absolutely unions are about the only hope for, for doing that part of a, a real challenge for progressives over the last several decades in the United States that have not understood the importance of unions is that power in politics comes from power in the world. It doesn't come from ideas or good messages or campaigns. It comes from having power in the world. And what the two, there are three nodes of power in the United States and the world. The, the most likely giant is, as you put in, corporations, conglomerations, capital. Then there's labor. This is like a way of organizing against that. And the third are the political churches, mostly in the southern United States. Right? Those are where collective action is, is still happening, right? And while Participating, voting is essential because we have MAGA, fascist movement, to, that we cannot let get national power. It is the most thinnest part of a democracy. And until we have we recreate collective action in unions and other kinds of communities, um, capitalism will run roughshod over it. And... That's what we all have to lean into. I want to maybe a good place to pull back here because it's something that I'm sure almost no one who's listening understands. You think about hearing a bit like, what can we do about inequality, for example? That's what, what is this policy a good one? Is that policy a good one? Right now, by conservative estimates, people who are in unions in the United States make $150 billion more than their peers who are not in unions. That is the largest income transfer program in the United States other than Medicare and Medicaid. Bigger than food stamps, right? Every year it happens because people working together are the best way to get their fair share, not waiting for the government to do it. So I think when more and more people start to realize that the way to get things done is in the world and not just, you know, every two years when they get a chance to choose A or B, we'll start making progress again. Is, I mean, one, one of the problems that we, I, I, I talk about with, with our members all the time is about being able to see the difference between power, influence and control. Anybody can have influence. And for a long time, we've relied on influence and clever techniques and ways you nudge and a little a single issue campaign or whatever to have influence. You don't have control as workers. You, you don't have control as workers in a capitalist system. The control is going to rest with the bosses who've got the cash and the capital. But what you do have is power. And, and, and that is the answer to corruption, answer to structural inequality, um, answer to income inequality, is the use and the exercise of that power. 
um, and, and actually not being fobbed off with influence. And that's what's happened for a very, very, very long time, is that in the UK, people have been fobbed off with influence. Um, and w th that is the shift. Corruption is seen as so endemic in society, so inevitable, that there's nothing you can do about it. It is a day-to-day -day part of the way in which modern 21st century capitalism works. What the trade union movement is about is about moving away from the influence and getting upset about the individual moral or immoral actions of Boris Johnson. And I don't think his parties are the most heinous things he's ever done. Um, you, you, you've got to move into a world where you actually have power to hold to account people who are mugging the taxpayer off for millions, billions of pounds. And it is through the union movement, through collective action, that you actually change that. And I think that that is really, really, really key. It, it, it's also dependent on the union movement having a degree of its own self-reflection as to how it builds that sense of power resting in the collective in society. Our alliances with green movements, our alliances with um, racial justice movements, our alliance uh, with, with disability activists um, and, and others and women's activists who are seeking to structure other, uh, challenge other structures. How are we not just turning up as the lecturers or, well, you know, we, we've been doing collective action for a long time and, you know, you're really important to us. But how are we actively amplifying their voices and being a platform and doing that cross-exchange? We've got to have a reflection as to how connected we are to, to the collective phenomenon that is happening throughout society. Um, I, yeah, that, it's, it's, a, it's a big bit of the way we need to restructure the economy. When you talk about restructuring an economy, that's a giant idea. What does it mean in terms of our little picture right now, the strikes of the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA? In what way does the business have to be restructured for the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA to get their fair share and for the companies to still feel that they can be competitive with each other in a global marketplace? What has to happen doesn't have to wait for the whole economy to be restructured. It just has to be all of the people in Los Angeles, all the people around the country stay in solidarity with the, with the striking writers and actors. It means that we understand that whether it's our industry, our job on the line today, right? It's all of our jobs on the line if everybody, if they can pick everybody off one by one. And it, because it is about power, it's not about restructuring the economy. It's restructuring the relationships of power that we feel as, you know, the over the 90 plus percent who are getting left out in the cold, how we behave. It's not about how the government behaves. It's not about how the corporations behave. It's about how we behave, because if we act together, we have the power to change things. Another thing I'm very fond of saying is no one's coming to save us. That you know the government is going to sweep in with some great legislation and help everybody. That's never happened ever anywhere. What happens is working people turn up and do and do the thing. And there has been a restructuring of the economy over the last fifty years by stealth, step by step, company by company, takeover by takeover, bosses pay rise, bonus by bonus. That is how it has happened, and that's what we've got to do, dispute by dispute, path by path. What we cannot have is a trade union movement, and my union historically has been guilty of this, um, as much as others have, of saying this is one dispute that has no wider impact and has no relevance to anybody else. We need people to, we need working class people to know that your kids, they might be very good in a school play, but unless they can have a sustainable and non-precarious job in the performing arts, their voice will never be heard. That's the stories that are told on your television. That is the, that, that, that is the way in which we discuss issues as a society. And you know what? 
CEO of a company, a diverse workforce means a diverse audience means more um, you know, pound in your pocket for, um, for, for your product and the work, the work that's done. I would heartily recommend people look into it or you know, there's a, a brilliant British uh, film made by the BBC a few years ago called Hypernormalisation. I'm not sure I, I, quite, I enjoy all of it. The concept of hypernormalisation, which existed in the Soviet Union in the late 1980s and the 1990s, uh, not just within the Soviet Union, but across the world observing the Soviet Union, was that it was impossible to think of anything else happening. And it manifested itself in lots of different ways. Western governments overvalued the value of East Germany by billions. These were the experts. They thought it was so in, uh, impossible to believe that this entire structure, the way in which we'd run the world 50 years, was going to fall apart. And it did, almost overnight. And it did in very, very diverse and different ways, whether it be Czechoslovakia, they're having conversations about the next stage of Marxism, or whether it be hyper-nationalism in other parts of, of, of that world. But nobody really thought that it was possible that it could happen. And it was impossible to conceive of your world, your society, your structure changing so radically within the space of a few years. I would posit that that's actually where we are with neo-capitalism right now. It is impossible for me or any other individual to think about where this goes next. That's why trade unions have to have this duty to make sure that we are behaving in a way that is linking these struggles, building this collective power, so the collective can have the answer of where it goes next. There's a great uh, saying that many people, that I don't quite know who actually deserves credit for it, but basically that it is much easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism or the end of neoliberalism, right? There's a way that the arrangements in society tend to get have a momentum and a kind of, you know, inevitability that is in fact what makes them sustainable. And I'm old enough and that when I, um, when I was young, Right. There was a different worldview. It was a pluralistic worldview in this country where the idea was that the best society was one where the interests of working people, government and corporations were balanced. And that produced shared prosperity for decades. And in the early 70s, when people like Milton Friedman and others started talking neoliberalism, no one could imagine that pluralistic order disappearing and that New Deal order. And yet, 10 years later, it was gone, right? I mean, that's not the happy version of change happens, but things do change. And that's what we have to keep working for. We'll leave it there. I'm feeling pretty lucky right now to have been in the presence of two such extraordinary and generous minds. They taught me a lot. I find myself gravitating back to something Michael said about the effects that unions have on communities that unions tend to create a habit of cooperation among people, that they become antidotes to things like racism and sexism. They create a thicker democracy. I love that phrase. Democracy, of course, requires partnership, and partnership, as we've discussed, requires faith. This Tuesday, talks between the WGA and the Alliance, which I'm now told should be called the AMPTS for studios, hit a gigantic hurdle. I will reserve comment on what happened in that meeting, but I will say that a deal remains reachable and that calm, rational people on both sides will continue to work toward it. And both sides, believe it or not, will ultimately win because the town will get back to work and the tension between labor and management will once again yield great entertainment as it always has. Just think of us again as Hillary Clinton making a deal with Tom DeLay. It doesn't have to be a love fest. It doesn't even have to be pleasant. 
It just has to be good for the kids. I want to thank my extraordinary guests, Paul Fleming and Michael Podhorzer. I want to thank my producers, David Janov and Hannah Baker. Please, please join us next week when our guests will be famous teams that didn't get along. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, Martin Riggs and Roger Murtaugh, and Shrek and Donkey. This is Strike Talk. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.